0: With you while I preach on Sunday morning, I guess one of the advantages to me is that um, preaching to a virtually empty congregation or in a room is that you can't throw eggs at me from your from your uh, kitchens, but. Um, nonetheless, I'm, I'm glad to, grateful to be in this space and to be with you this morning. We're in the, uh, in the third of a four-week um, kind of mini-series, and we're looking at various challenges that, um, that we're facing in our spirituality and our life of discipleship in these turbulent times. And the first week we looked at fear and faith, and then last week we looked at loneliness and solitude. And uh, today we're looking at boredom. Uh, Boredom and wakefulness in the spiritual life. When I was um, in seminary, my preaching professor uh, had a thing where he would tell his class every year that the worst sin a preacher can ever commit is to deliver a boring sermon. He said that to deliver a boring sermon would essentially be like a lie because there's nothing boring about the God of the universe. And so, if you're preaching a boring sermon, then you're misrepresenting the God of the universe and you're essentially lying from the pulpit. What a challenge, I, I thought. And so, for the next couple hours, I was um, considering going to law school. Um, but, uh, but uh, that didn't get me very far, and, and uh, I'm here today as a sinner who has preached a boring sermon before, and I hope that's not the case today. But it is um, the end of June, and uh, parents of school-age kids know this as the beginning of the season of boredom, because as you know, and this is like in a normal year, Uh, uh, coronavirus aside. Summer can be an excruciating time for parents because because their their responsibilities and their commitments and their tasks are still there, but yet the kids are, are home and they're bored. And so every day parents are informed that, well, there's nothing to do. We're bored. And this, of course, makes Parents roll their eyes a little bit and say, we wish we had the luxury of being bored. But the truth is that parents also experience boredom. It's just that when we're adults in our adult lives, boredom takes on a little bit of a different shape or form than there's nothing to do. Because we've got plenty of things to do. There's always more to do, more responsibilities, more tasks, more commitments than we could possibly get done. Adult boredom isn't a lack of busyness as much as it is a lack of joy. Very simply put, boredom is disinterest. It's it's disinterest. It's the condition of finding someone or something or some task or some event or uh, perhaps most everything uninteresting. So for example, when, when one of your kids says, I'm bored, there's nothing to do, you know that that's not actually a true statement. Because, of course, there's the dishes, there's laundry, and there's uh, yard work to do. So they don't literally mean, I'm bored, there's nothing to do. What they literally mean is, I'm bored, there's nothing interesting for me to do. There's nothing that interests me. And so this is why we can be very, very busy in our lives and still be bored at the same time. Because boredom isn't the opposite of busyness, it's the opposite of interest. Which also then means that it's a joy problem. Because lack of interest comes with a lack of joy. Now, sometimes as a, as a side, I, I just want to mention that boredom is caused by external circumstances that are outside of our control. For example, if you've lost a loved one and you're going through the grieving process, disinterest is a part of that grieving process. Uh, if you are exhausted and you're sleep de- deprived, that can lead to a kind of boredom and so can things like going through chemotherapy um, or other kinds of illnesses. And and those are temporary forms of of boredom that are usually relieved uh, when you go through the grieving process or you you get the sleep that you need, so on and so forth. But when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he was dealing with a different kind of boredom, a kind of a spiritual boredom, and and with the other churches as well, he, he dealt with this. Um, A a spiritual boredom or a disinterest that was a, a threat to the church. You see, in the first century, most Christians, including most likely Paul himself, believed that the return of Christ was imminent. That the return of Christ, that Christ was going to return in their lifetime. And so now, over 50 years later, after the resurrection, persecution in Rome is continuing to rise, and the adrenaline of Christ's resurrection and the delay of his imminent return, um, it was the, the the adrenaline was starting to wear off. And so it was starting to, to become hard to see how following Jesus was a life-giving choice at this point. When is this? Going to end this persecution, this living in between—is Christ going to come in my lifetime or not? And you know, it's kind of like, is coronavirus ever going to end or not? Like we think it's going to end, and it doesn't end, and then we, and so it just goes on and on. And so this, this um, led to a kind of spiritual boredom or apathy or disinterest that threatened the church that Paul wanted to address and um, and warn them. I think that in Romans 13, in our passage, he, he addresses this in a few ways. And, and I think that these are kind of like antidotes for, for boredom. It's important to know that, just a little background context, that the book of Romans um, reflects over two decades of teaching and preaching and helping these churches uh, for the Apostle Paul. This is Paul uh, at his best with his most uh, uh, mature mind and rigorous spirituality is the book of Romans. And the first 11 chapters, Paul is dealing with. The righteousness of God. He's dealing with theology. Who is God and what is this great thing that God has done in Jesus Christ? What is his mercy like? How is it that we are justified by grace through faith? And he's dealing with all that theology in the first 11 chapters. And then um, he, and part of that is he also has to deal with the place of Israel within that story. And then the rest of the letter is basically his counsel, his admonitions to the church. It's kind of like the therefore. So in light of who God is, in light of the righteousness of God and his great mercy, here is now then how we are to live as Christians in the world, as followers of Jesus in the world. And it begins actually in chapter 12 with the word therefore. Therefore, again in light of who God is, offer your bodies. In light of God's great sacrifice in Jesus Christ, therefore offer your lives, your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual worship. And the rest of the book is kind of like fleshing out what that means, what that looks like. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world because this world is spiritually bored and dependent on external stimulation instead instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind well what does that look like well that's the rest of the of the letter and when he gets to chapter 13 and verse 8 the beginning of our passage for today he says oh no one anything except to love one another And I think this is a really great antidote to boredom. Commit yourself, in other words, to Jesus' ethic of love. And if if you wonder if Jesus and Paul disagree, um, this is a great text that that shows that Paul really understood Jesus' understanding of the law. The whole of the law is summed up in in this command to love, this ethic, this way of love that is Jesus' life. You see, it's spiritually boring just to follow rules, just to follow commandments as rules. But loving your neighbor is the essence of the commandments. So in other words, if you just follow the rules because you think that you're supposed to, and this is what it means to live a good Christian or godly kind of life, you're gonna be spiritually dead. But if you embrace the ethic, the story of love that undergirds all of the commandments, God's love for the world, and you embrace that heart of of God for the world, then you see that your obedience directly or indirectly fosters a culture of love in the world. And then it's not a chore, but a a joyful and grateful response towards God's mercy for us. But sometimes we don't really feel love. We don't really feel loving towards someone else. We don't feel like uh, loving someone or others in general, especially when we're bored, um, because when we're bored, we're usually not thinking about anything other than the fact that we're bored. And so it's kind of this self-absorbed sort of state. Um, why, why, is, why am I bored? Why is nothing around me making me un And so it's hard to imagine, you know, it's hard to love someone else uh, feel love uh, when you're bored. But Paul knows that the way to change your heart is through practice. And so therefore, if if you want to feel love towards someone that you don't really feel a whole lot of love for, then do something loving for that person and you'll find that your heart will follow little by little by little. You're heart will follow your actions. And this is an antidote to boredom because it gets you outside of yourself, which then actually in turn will fill your cup too. Then Paul goes on and he talks about um, waking up to the nowness of God, of the reality of God in their midst. And I think this is important for those early Christians who are waiting who are waiting from the, Christ, the resurrection of Christ to his return, Paul wants them to see that the resurrection wasn't something that just happened for them 50 years ago, and it's not something that is just going to happen again when Christ returns, but the resurrection is something that happens. It happens every day, and it is the activity of God. So when, in the, when Christ was resurrected, the, the uh, and the curtain was torn, the love of God was spilled out all over into the world, and the kingdom of God burst forth. God's future burst forth into the present. And so Paul wants these early Christians to see that God is alive and well in spite of all of the persecution that they're experiencing. Where do you see resurrection today? Every time someone uh, does something loving and loving, for another or sacrifices something for someone else. That's that's a sign of the resurrection. See, remember last week, uh, we talked about how abiding in Christ and accepting Christ are two different things. Abiding in Christ is about the adventure uh, of life with the Holy Spirit who molds us through practices of faith, who helps us to see Uh, that the resurrection is a present reality as much as it was an historical event. And so there's this sense of alertness that Paul wants us to have as we go about our days. There's a sense of wakefulness to God's presence in both expected and unexpected ways where he reveals himself to us. And I think that one of the best ways to wake up or to overcome boredom is to, is to learn to cultivate a, a life of paying attention to beauty and wonder. If you allow yourself to be wondered by things, by creation or by love. I, just a, um, this past week, I saw a, a video story of beautiful family named the Baldwins from North Carolina, African-American family, and they, she had, the mother was telling her story of 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 the growth of her family, and after several miscarriages, you know, they had gone through an adoption process, and they ended up adopting a a white child, and usually, most commonly, we see it reversed. We see white families with African-American children, and so here's this Um, story of kind of the opposite of this African-American family and their children, one of whom is white, and they had six of them, three adopted and three biological, and she shared the story of of different kinds of painful microaggression kinds of racism that she experienced that we would rather um, pretend didn't exist but were real for her, such as being accused of kidnapping um, this child, and all sorts of, of weird and um, microaggressive comments and yet her consistent and persistent love and protection over this family and over this child through all of it. It was just beautiful story that, that reminded me that God is alive and well uh, amidst all of the challenges that we see and all of the evidence to the contrary, as Bart would say, um, that, that, that the resurrection is is still happening in our midst, and Paul wants us to wake up. He says, "Wake up, for you have fallen asleep." There's a sense of alertness that he wants us to to have, and um, it's quite beautiful. Then Paul says, uh, "Put on Christ," and this is kind of the discipline to put on Christ every morning. He says this elsewhere, especially in in Colossians, you know, where he he says, um, he says uh, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. It, all, he says this in multiple times, and this is baptismal language. This is identity language. This concept of, of putting on Christ is something that we are to do every single morning. You see, Paul um, understands that we have two different identities swirling around in our lives, in our souls, within us. There are two identities. There's our, our, our sin identity, or he's also called that our flesh identity. And then there's our image of God identity, um, or our spirit identity. Thomas Merton has referred to that as our false self and our true self. And Paul even writes in Romans 8 how these two identities are at war within us. They're constantly battling us. But here's the thing, at, in our baptism, when we are baptized, we, the, the uh, image of God identity, the true self-identity, is restored to us in our baptism. And we hear the same words that the father said to Jesus in his baptism, spoken to us. You are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's our true identity that has been restored in our baptism through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by grace through faith. And it takes the rest of our lives to actually learn to believe it because the sin identity and the false identity is so strong and so influential, and it can be so powerful that the journey of sanctification is the journey of of our baptismal identity being restored. And that that begins every morning when you wake up and you put on Christ. The first Christians, they actually They'd used real garments and clothing uh, when they went through their baptism. They had their old garments, and they'd go down into the river. They would be dunked, and uh, they would come out, and they would be, get put on white new garments as a sign of saying this is our, our new identity in Christ. But it's actually an, an old identity, an original identity that was lost in the fall and is now being restored. What, what a great gift. Now, where was I going with all of that? So what does this have to do with boredom, right? Simply this. Boredom is one of our greatest teachers. It's one of our greatest spiritual teachers. In the ancient world, they did, you know, they didn't even have a word for boredom. Isn't that weird that they didn't even have a word for, for boredom? I mean, certainly they experienced boredom. I mean, they didn't even have Netflix, And they didn't have Instagram, and they didn't have movies and and airplanes. I mean, we, we look at the ancient world, we think that must have been a pretty boring world. But one of the differences between the ancient world and our modern world is that in the ancient world, people had to take responsibility for their own capacity to focus their attention in the ancient world. And so, like, we get those long, long lists of like genealogies or, or greetings at the end of Romans, and we think, oh, that's just like the dullest thing in the world. Why would that be in the Bible? They, uh, the early Jewish people, kids and, and others, they, um, they would memorize those genealogies. Those were their family, those were their ancestors. This is their story. It, and so. We, we think, how in the world would anybody be able to memorize a genealogy or, or a scripture? And um, they would, there's um, tradition has said that ancient uh, young Israelites were required to memorize the first five books of the Bible, the entire Torah. We think there's no way we could memorize scripture like that. But I have the entire movie of. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation memorized. So um, some of you have the entire episodes of The Office memorized or hip-hop songs or whatever it is. Why is this? Well, the ancient world, the scriptures weren't dull. It was lifeblood for them. They loved to think about it. They loved to work at it regularly. Um, Just as, you know, there's a bike shop on like every corner here in the Salt Lake Valley and they're all full which means that everyone loves to exercise and, and, and ride bikes and mountain bike and road bike and hike and climb. Well, the ancient people, they did the same thing with their brains. They understood that you have to work at it and it's like a muscle. And so that's why, and so they would practice memorizing. Uh, memoratio was a, a really important part of, of the oral tradition. The practice of memorizing was very common and so that's why oral traditions were actually much more reliable than we think that that we tend to think that they were. And so when they were by themselves or when they were shepherding or when they were out in the fields, they would be rehearsing and and working on their they'd have a very rich mental experience. Now we live in a day where we depend on external stimuli uh, to occupy our minds. And when we don't have external stimulation, we're bored. The problem with that is that the great danger, threat, is that the unaided mind tends toward fear and anger. And so if you don't tend to the renewing and the the putting on Christ, the renewing of your mind, it will bend towards fear and anger. The unaided mind tends toward fear and anger. This is, the, the way that Paul put it was that the sinful mind is death in other places or the lazy mind is death. And so when I go into solitude, I am absenting myself from all the props that scaffold my life, that hold my life up. And I find, what do I have when it's just me and God? Or as John of the Cross says, what, what are you going to do when it, when everything else has been stripped away, do you still love God if it's God plus nothing? And a lot of that in the beginning is is gonna be boredom, what we're gonna experience in solitude. And then I had the chance to be alone with God and and in time say, God, uh, how might I be able to cultivate a mind where I can be alone with you unaided, to have a mind that is filled with rich, joyful, and loving thoughts. Now, I, I also know that with, with little children, that can be like a nearly impossible task, just to find time of solitude. But if you were to think of, of and, and what an interruption our kids can be when we're trying to spend time in solitude with God. But, Kids can be boring to be around too. And so to to be present with them without your phones and without other, and then to perceive your kids, not as an interruption, but as actually the way in which the spirit comes after you and says, I wanna be with you. So your kid coming to run on, sit on your lap is, is the spirit jumping into your kid's body and saying, I wanna sit on your lap right now. And so enter into that time as a time of solitude and imagine the spirit with you in that way as well. It, this can be cultivated. It can. It, even, um, I th- and I'm not a neuroscientist by any stretch, but I am, I've heard or been learning that um, neuroscience even has some research and some evidence to suggest that um, contemplative practice can actually create new pathways in your brain and can heal all kinds of men- mental struggles and issues, it's as though we're, we're starting to scientifically prove what the people of God have known intuitively for thousands of years. It's quite amazing. And so people who live great lives, you know, they have, they have great minds. Paul writes, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And solitude, solitude is the place where we go first to be confronted with our minds, to learn about our minds. To learn, to find out the truth about our mind. And most of us are so afraid of boredom that we don't want to do it. That we're not willing to even have that happen. We'd, we have to have music or we have to have a screen or we have to have something because God forbid that we should ever be bored for a few minutes. But boredom is a necessity uh, for spiritual growth. Solitude doesn't begin by transforming the mind. It begins by revealing my mind and then over time it's transformed. G.K. Chesterton said that there is no such thing as an uninteresting subject. The only thing that can exist is an uninterested person. And So when we feel disinterested and it's not a health issue or a more complex issue or a grief issue or a moral issue, we should not believe the deceptive mood that we've exhausted everything that interests us. Go into your cell, go into your room, and encounter the God who's more interesting than anything this world could possibly offer us. We should instead assume that we're perhaps mentally and imaginatively out of shape, And we could use a little exercise. And so think of boredom this week. If you experience little blips or feelings of boredom, whether in the midst of your busyness or not, um, think of it as a dashboard warning indicator that just starts dinging, right? Like your check engine light coming on. Something has caused your interest level to run low. And it's draining your joy. Paul invites you to, to practice love, the 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 ethic of love. Do something loving for someone else. Um, Pay attention and, and notice beauty because that is God at work, the resurrection happening each day. And then exercise your mind and your soul in solitude as you put on Jesus Christ each day. Well, Lord, we give you thanks for your word to us today and we thank you uh, that your your spirit is with us, is alive and well, is transforming our, our lives. And this is liminal space we're in, God, um, in this coronavirus and all of this that's going on. And there's so much uncertainty, and there's so much frustration. Lord, help us. Help us to uh, to be disciplined. To be awake to your presence renewing your world and the joy that we get to have in being a part of it. When we find ourselves bored, may we return to your great mercy and your great love and enter into it. So be with us this week, oh God. Be present with us. May we not feel alone. May we not feel useless or without purpose. But may we have a clear path in moving toward you each day. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.